As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, you know, like, I'm a serious financial journalist. I'm a serious journalist. And one aspect of journalism that I think is important. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't. I'm sorry. I just know where this is going. Go on. <laughs> no, no. I just feel like... One important aspect of journalism is impartiality. Like, you know, I don't think we should, like, take <laughs> views on many things. We should be open-minded. We should be intellectually honest. But it's not really our job to, like, take a position on things. You know what I'm saying? Sorry. I don't know why I can't stop laughing um, because impartiality is very, very important. I think the difficulty comes when when you – I mean, in a lot of financial journalism, people have strong opinions about one topic one way or the other. And sometimes those opinions seem to be grounded in logic. And so you get frustrated if other people don't see the same logic. But yes, like we are not supposed to take sides. We're supposed to lay out both sides of the argument every time. So I I, I take this responsibility as a serious capital J journalist very seriously. But I have to admit, if I'm being completely honest, if I'm being completely honest, there is one topic that I find very hard to, um, let's say, avoid showing my bias. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, so we're talking about minting the trillion dollar coin, of which you have been an advocate for a very long time. <laughs> First of all, I can't believe that we've managed to do, what is it, like six years of the Odd Lots podcast, and we haven't yet done a mint the coin episode? Um, yeah. So that's one thing. And then secondly, I mean, this is the one thing that I remember <laughs> about your writing or like the foremost thing about your writing before we started working together at Bloomberg. It was the big post you did at Business Insider. I think it was way back in 2013, something like that, about yeah. minting the coin and the discussion people were having about it at the time. Yeah, And I remember reading that and thinking, this must be a joke. This is so weird. Um, you know, I started thinking about whether or not we're in a simulation <laughs> again. And and now, like, fast forward to 2021, and there are actual politicians in Washington who are talking about it. It's been a really incredible decade. So, yes, I am going to fully admit my bias. I actually admitted it to one of our colleagues the other day. I was like, you know... I'm a serious journalist, but I have to admit that I really think the debt ceiling is a very absurd law and that a very good solution is for the Treasury to mint a trillion dollar platinum coin and just end this farce once and for all. So, yes, that is my bias. But, you know, people, it is weird. And I will be the first to admit it's like a weird thing. Like, I'm not going to deny that it's strange, that it seems that it's a legal loophole, that it's a hack, that people have lots of questions both on the economics, the legality, and the sort of like the institutional aspects of how this can be done and who is the unilaterally authority to just create a trillion dollars of money. I admit that there's a lot of questions and people have reason to be skeptical. Nonetheless, I think it's a good idea. Maybe you do too. Well, maybe you'll be convinced. And uh, I think, though, it is surprising that after all these years of the Odd Lots podcast, we're finally, for the first time, doing a coin episode 
because as you point out, I've actually been writing about this topic for really almost a decade mm-hmm. now. Yeah, so this is going to be one of the episodes where I think I sit back and learn a lot um, from both you okay. and our guest. And I think I'm probably going to be representative of maybe the average person who encounters the idea. I, I kind of get how the mechanics of it would work, but again, instinctively, it just seems absolutely crazy to, I guess, try to fix the absurdity of American political theater with what basically amounts to more absurdity. But I I have a feeling we're going to get into that. There is some logic to that. So I I hope you play an active role in this conversation because we have to ask the tough questions. Let's let's get started. So without further ado, we have the best guest, I think, to discuss it. We're going to be speaking to Rowan Gray. He is an assistant professor of law at Willamette University. He is also a longtime coin advocate, and he has, in fact, written what I think is probably the definitive sort of law review article on the legality of the coin. It is extremely thorough, both in terms of talking through its economics, some of the common objections to it, and why he believes it's a legal and perhaps even mandatory route to circumvent the debt ceiling. It is titled Administering Money, Coinage, Debt Crises, and the Future of Fiscal Policy, a very serious, thorough, rigorous legal work. And uh, in addition to advocating, he's also a bit of a uh, sort of policy entrepreneur. Having worked with elected representatives to introduce laws that would uh, bring about the coin. So he is a scholar and an activist and um, an entrepreneur on the subject. So the best guest to discuss it. Rowan, thank you so much for coming on, uh, coming back on Autolots. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here talking about our jointly favorite topic. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's actually just start with like the really big picture because, you know, there are still some people who like I encounter on Twitter and so forth. They're like, can you just like point me just like the simple version? Like, how does the coin work? Yeah, I mean, the starting point is that the coin works like all coins work, which is that the mint, which is the oldest monetary institution in the United States, predating the Federal Reserve by over a century, uh, which is housed within the Treasury, uh, would mint uh, a coin of a certain value and uh, would deposit that coin at the Federal Reserve. Uh, and the Federal Reserve would take that coin and then own that coin and record it on its balance sheet as an asset, like you and I would if we got a coin that someone gave us. Uh, and then it would credit the Treasury for the equivalent amount of dollars that the coin is worth, which is okay. legally speaking its face value. And that money would then be available in the Treasury's regular spending account to spend in the same way as it would if it sold any other financial instrument like a Treasury bond or a Treasury note. And then it would go about the daily spending. And this coin would work the way that all the other coins that get minted on a regular basis work in the sense that um, the mint would, would issue it and then take the money in and then sweep the money back into the Treasury's sort of general account, its general spending account. Um, the only difference here would be that the, the number of zeros on the end of the coin would be substantially larger than most other coins. And for a change, it would be made out of platinum instead of, you know, copper or zinc or whatever else. So, I mean, the idea here is that basically you would bypass all the political wrangling that we see, you know, every three or four years um, nowadays, I guess, uh, uh, over raising the debt ceiling. And I'm wondering, maybe just to like step back even further, could you explain why we have a debt ceiling in the first place or limits on the amount of debt um, in the U.S.? And, and what that's supposed to accomplish. Yeah, thanks. I think it's a great starting point. The starting point, at least to me, is to think about what the world was like before the debt ceiling. And before 1917, there was a, a practice where if Congress wanted to create a new spending program or, or spend on a particular project, you know, a canal or a war or the postal service, uh, it would appropriate the funds Uh, through the appropriations process. Uh, And then usually either in a separate accompanying bill or sometimes in the same bill, it would direct the treasury on how to finance that spend. So sometimes it would say issue a bunch of three-month bills. Sometimes it would say issue a bunch of 30-year bonds. Sometimes it would say issue some combination. 
Sometimes it would say raise the revenue through uh, uh, customs taxes or through a new tax or through signage with the mint. And it would tell the treasury how, which, which sort of financing mechanism and that financing mechanism would be specific to that spending bill. And for a long time, this was the way that things worked. Each spending commitment had its own financing authority. But when World War I comes along and the United States is sort of getting bigger and this really started probably with the Civil War with Lincoln, but it kind of reached its, its sort of mature form in the 20th century, um, it became basically logistically unwieldy, impractical to have a different spending authority, different financing authority, I should say, for different spending commitments in a way that the Treasury had no discretion over. So you would have situations where there'd be excess money left over in this financing authority, and then a different spending commitment would not have enough, and the Treasury Secretary wouldn't be able to move that spending financing authority around to make sure that it could finance everything. And so the debt ceiling, which sort of started in 1917 and then kind of reached its mature form in in 1939, but it was never originally intended to be a limit on spending. It was intended to facilitate more executive branch autonomy and discretion and flexibility in financing practices. So so that's really interesting. And I already learned something new because I always had just sort of been under this assumption that the only purpose was to create this sort of like nominal or, uh, you know, fig leaf restraint on the amount of debt. And I hadn't realized that actually it sort of served this purpose to establish flexibility. So these days, obviously, most people would agree it's just an opportunity for politicians to grandstand and to say they oppose the debt, even if they rang it up. Now, you mentioned that the trillion dollar platinum coin would really be like any other coin, except that A, it would have a lot more zeros at the end of it, and B, it would be made out of platinum. Why don't you talk us about... Does it have to be made out of platinum? Well, this is the key thing. So, Rowan, why don't you talk to us about the specific law and where that law came from where uh, that gives legal authority to the creation of this high denomination coin? Yeah. So, you know, when you think about the debt ceiling, one way to think about it is that there's a quantitative cap but within that cap, the Treasury Secretary has a lot of discretion. They want to issue three-month, one-year, two-year, 10-year, 30-year, or, you know, 50-year, as, as Mnuchin was floating for a hot minute when he was the Treasury Secretary. The debt ceiling is really talking about the aggregate cap. The Coinage Act has a very different set of constraints. It constrains qualitatively. That is to say, you know, if it's going to be one cent, it has to look like this. If it's going to be made of gold, it could only be up to one dollar, etc. But it has never and does not today impose any quantitative cap. There's no point where the Mint says, oh, we produce the number of coins we can for this year. We'll have to stop shop in September or something. You know, it was a big year for coins. Uh, nothing like that. There's been no limit on the number of coins that can be issued. But there has been these qualitative caps. And so, you know, we probably have seen, you know, dollars, silver dollars, things like that. And there's above a single dollar, there's commemorative usually coins, you know, $25 palladium coins, certain kinds of sort of collector coins and things. But in the 90s, particularly in 1996, there was a bill that was passed that amended the Coinage Act to create a new provision, 315112K, uh, which granted the Treasury Secretary the authority to mint and issue platinum bullion or platinum proof coins. And proof there just means a high production grade, like sh very, very, very shiny coins of whatever denomination the Treasury Secretary wished, whatever they thought was useful and socially beneficial. And this was originally a bill that was sponsored by a Republican member who was the, uh, the subcommittee on coinage's uh, chair uh, named Mike Castle in very close consultation with then director of the Mint, Philip Deal, who was previously, I believe, the legal director of the Senate Finance Committee, or it could be Banking Committee, I could be confusing those. Mint Director Deal was probably one of the most sort of visionary Mint Directors of, of our generation, um, because even putting aside this provision, he transformed the internal budget of the Mint. He, he made it off budget in the way that the Fed is off budget. Uh, he gave it more autonomy. He created a whole range of new products and things to bring in more revenue. And one of the reasons that Mike Castle like this was because it, it would bring in signage revenue, that is the difference between the face value of the coin and how much it costs to produce, and that that revenue would go into the Treasury's account and reduce the need for additional borrowing. 
So Mike Castle was a fiscal conservative. Was like this is good, and from the Mint's point of view, this was a was a pretty kind of powerful catch-all provision. At the time, the aim was actually to allow the the, the Mint director to make even smaller coins than the ones that were being sold, and to give more flexibility on that end. But the way the language was written, and again, Director Deal was very intentional and very smart about this, gave the Treasury Secretary, under the plain language, complete discretion. If it wanted to be a $5 coin, wanted to be a $500 coin, wanted to be a $5,000 coin, wanted to be a $5 million coin, the law said this is within the Treasury Secretary's discretion. Um, Just like it's within their discretion whether to issue a 30-year bond or a 5-year bond or a 50-year bond. That law stayed on the books. And when the regular financing system works the way it's supposed to, nobody is looking in the drawer for the crazy Hail Mary statutes. But the, the debt ceiling showdown, sort of they were they were going on in a low grade way since about the 50s, but never really to the point of kind of complete government shutdown uh, until about the mid 1980s. And then it, it really got bad with President Obama. That was when really for the first time it looked like one party would, would just not play ball at all, rather than just do the regular kind of grandstanding and grumbling and eventually pass something. And that was when uh, a, a lawyer named Carlos Mucha, who at the time was going under the internet moniker Beowulf, uh, did some digging because he'd heard some people talk about, you know, coinage as a power that, that was underexplored and found this law on the books and said, look, you know, we could use this now and avoid the need to, to continue to sort of have these recurrent crises. And this law is pretty clear. Right? This is this is a pretty clear interpretation. There is no ambiguity here. There's no asterisk. And it would be consistent with how coinage works in general. Again, just a matter of degree, not kind. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. When the idea first surfaced, like, what was the intention behind it, do you think? Was it basically a thought experiment of how you could solve the debt ceiling crisis? Or was, like, was it basically just, like, trolling by, you know, some finance nerds? A little bit of both, I think. You know, I'll let Carlos speak for himself. Uh, but I think um, he, he was making this comment on an MMT blog. And, uh, you know, one of the things that MMT is like to talk about is the fact that the government spending limits are, are not on the financial side. They're on real resource and inflationary capacity, etc. But to the extent that there are procedural restrictions on how the Treasury spends or how, you know, whether the, the Treasury spending account can go into a negative overdraft or not and those kinds of questions, um, they're all self-imposed. They're all things that we passed a law and could pass a different law tomorrow and change the structure, right? They're not, they're not a sort of physical constraint. They're a, a socially constructed constraint. And so that was the sort of water that Carlos was swimming in in 2011 and 2010 when he started looking into this stuff. This was the sort of general discussions that we were having on those blogs back in the day that was, you know, there are things like the debt ceiling, there are things like treasury bond auctions that happen, but are they because they need to or just because they're sort of a leftover of a different regime or because they serve a useful social fiction? And it was just one more example of showing how arbitrary and stupid and self-imposed these constraints are. Remember, this is taking place against the backdrop of the Deficit Reduction Commission and Obama saying, you know, we're out of money now when asked when the government's going to run out of money and all these things. So in addition to solving the acute problem of the debt ceiling crisis with this sort of clever legal hack that required only the president's pen um, and I guess the mint's stamping machines, uh, it was also a very pedagogically and and symbolically powerful way to make the point that there's a big fat infinity sign next to how many dollars the US government has. And and that's always been the case, even if we do create laws to obscure that fact. Let's talk 
a bit more about the intent behind the law and why you don't see that as a problem. So uh, Mike Castle from Delaware, the congressional author, obviously was not thinking of this as a way to circumvent the debt ceiling. It was about a collectible coinage and seniorage revenue at the Mint. Philip Deal, the uh, Mint director at the time who uh, drafted the language, he's like, yeah, this is legal, but this is clearly like not the intent of the law. It was about creating more uh, collectible coins for people. Why isn't that a problem? This uh, is like, look, obviously this was not their intent. This was just about uh, creating some more options for collectible coin collectors, etc. Why should we not just uh, dismiss this as sort of like an absurd reinterpretation that's clearly not what the law was intended for? Yeah, I think there's a couple of layers. So the first layer is, you know, intent can be looked at narrowly or broadly. The narrow intent here, the short-term immediate intent was to actually make it possible to create smaller denomination platinum coins, right? But the way that that problem was solved was not to write a law that said the maximum value of this coin is $100 or smaller. It was to say, you know what, let's get out of the business entirely of regulating what the denomination is. Let's leave that up to the Treasury Secretary. So even if the immediate problem is one thing, if you develop a broader solution that it fixes that problem and fixes potential other problems, that's fine. The second thing is, at a broader level, the goal of this bill was to give the Mint more tools to use the signage power to generate additional revenue that would reduce the need to borrow. That's what Mike Castle has said. That's what Deal has said, was that the goal of these commemorative coin programs, which again, remember, Deal kind of ramped up as the Mint director, was to bring in more revenue, which meant less borrowing was necessary. So in that sense, Using it in this way, and again, I wouldn't deny at all that there's a lot more zeros than any of the people that wrote this would ever expect it to appear on a coin like this. (laughs) In a broader sense, that is still entirely consistent with what it's doing. It's minting a coin to generate revenue to reduce the need to issue additional government debt. There's another layer which is about legislative intent. You know, and of course, we're at a time now where the politicization of the courts is pretty overt and obvious. No one would look at the Supreme Court and pretend that decisions aren't going to be, you know, impacted by the fact we have a 6-3 court now in one way. But a number of the people on the court uh, have been pretty dismissive of legislative intent as something that they should look to at all. Um, So if they're consistent with their own principles, which I don't expect will always happen, but if they were, then that shouldn't even be an issue for them. Um, but even even sort of more progressive members of the court have said, you know, we're all textualists now, and whatever we might look to legislative intent, we don't usually do so when the plain meaning of the, the statute is so obvious, when it's very, very clear, when there's no room for sort of wiggle room or interpretation, there's no point where we have to sort of ask more deeply than what's being said to us plainly to our faces then we don't get into that kind of messy process of trying to work out legislative intent. The fact that this is not the one narrow thing that people originally created this law for shouldn't be fatal to it because it's not fatal to any other law. We, use, we creatively reinterpret laws all the time, especially in moments of crises, especially when the alternative is even worse. And in this situation... That's, I think, the, the, the context in which this comes up, is that the alternative here is catastrophic and unconstitutional. And if we can read this on its face, take it on its face, and in doing so, avert not only a political crisis and an economic crisis, but a legal constitutional crisis, I think that's entirely consistent. And so do constitutional scholars like Lawrence Tribe and Jack Balkan and a number of others uh, who, who have you know, far more experience with the canons of constitutional interpretation than I do. So two things here. I think I understand the legality argument, and I understand also the argument that uh, the way the debt ceiling is currently being used, it basically seems like an anachronism and it seems like it's damaging the economy, you know, increasingly frequently we have these like brinkmanship um, theater-like events in Congress where uh, they get closer and closer to a technical default and markets start to panic and it ends up feeding back into the real economy. So that's not great. But 
is minting the coin really the best way to solve the issue? And are there any other options on the table for permanently solving the issue of, of the debt ceiling? And, and how realistic are those alternatives? Yeah, I mean, there's some other creative accounting gimmicks, and I think it's important to acknowledge this is basically an accounting gimmick, but it's an accounting gimmick to deal with an accounting failure. And if you've ever worked in business and things, you know, that's a very common way to get around a silly accounting restriction is to use creative accounting. So this isn't sort of outside the realm of normality in that sense. In fact, one of the first times that we really did go to the wire with the debt ceiling was in 1985, and the Treasury Secretary raided the Social Security Fund there in a way that the Government Accountability Office later said was probably a violation of the Social Security Act. But, you know, quote, um, considering the extraordinary circumstances of the moment, it was sort of understandable. But there are sort of other alternatives, for example, debt held by the public. Some lawyers have suggested that we could interpret that to exclude the, the Treasury securities held by the Fed. The Fed is currently considered, you know, part of the public for accounting purposes for the budget because that's how we ignore the Fed's balance sheet when doing budget analysis. Um, people are saying we could just not count that part and that would give us, you know, what, another five or seven trillion or something of, of breathing room. I don't find that a long-term fix. It just sort of staves off the inevitable and hopefully we would, you know, change the debt ceiling in the meantime, but it's a temporary stopgap in a way that the coin is, is more uh, permanent. Others have suggested we could issue a console, which is basically a perpetual government bond, um, because the the way that the debt ceiling statute is written is that the only uh, instruments whose quote principal and interest you know is guaranteed is under that ceiling. But consoles do not have a principal to be repaid. So this is actually another Carlos Mucha classic. You know, shout out to him for for trying to follow up his his debut album with some other sophomore um, hits as well. The only sort of categorical solution I've seen that sort of comes at the same level is just to blow through the debt ceiling and say that the alternative would be a default and that violates uh, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment that the public debt shall not be questioned. So we should just do that. And I think that that's actually a much worse solution in terms of the political implications because it requires the... Talk talk about that a little bit because you mentioned the sort of you know, a, a breach of the debt ceiling and a theoretical default. It's a political crisis. It's a financial crisis because treasuries are the world's safest asset. If they're defaulted upon, it's kind of unthinkable what that would do to the financial system. And then, as you mentioned, that there is this constitutional crisis. And so you get this sort of question of whether a default is even legal. And I think like, I think even like Bill Clinton has said, you know what, just ign- some people have said, just ignore the debt ceiling law, keep issuing it. Because you could just invoke the 14th Amendment and that says uh, you can't question the debt. Explain to us what that, that fifth section of the 14th Amendment says and why you don't think it's safe or sound to simply ignore uh, the debt ceiling on constitutional grounds. Yeah. So, um, and and just to give some context. My my law review article on this um, is is really a kind of response to another article by a lawyer named Michael Dorf and an economist named Neil Buchanan uh, in the Columbia Law Review called "How to Choose the Least Unconstitutional Option: Lessons for the President from the Debt Ceiling Standoff." And it's a it's a sort of constitutional theory paper, but it uses the debt ceiling to make the point. And it was obviously very impactful in that debate. It came out around 2011, 2012, and I know people in the White House and things were, were reading it and considering it. And their, and their argument was basically that Congress gives the Treasury three directives, spend a certain amount, tax a certain amount, borrow a certain amount. And if the amount of spending, net of taxes, so the deficit, the size of the deficit that needs to be financed, exceeds what is available to be borrowed or you know issuing Treasury debt, then there is a paradox. The, treas- the, the, the Congress has given you know, contradictory directives to the Treasury. And their argument was that if you have these contradictory directives, if something has to give, one of these three, the trilemma, one of them can't stand, that of those three, spending and taxing are sort of core legislative fiscal powers. If we think of the power of the purse, which you know the legislature has relative to the power of the pen and the power of the sword, that spending and taxing are sort of the the very core of that power. And so if one of these has to be violated, it's better to violate the debt ceiling than to unilaterally have the president cut spending 
which some people are talking about now. You know, we're going to prioritize paying interest on the debt, but not, you know, social security recipients or federal employees or something, or unilaterally raising taxes, right? I'm just going to appropriate people's money and then that's how I'll finance things. Relative to those options, blowing through the debt ceiling is the least bad because let's be honest, it's an accounting gimmick anyway. For the last seven or eight years at least, and certainly even before that, we were basically raising it as a pro forma matter or just suspending it entirely for extended periods of time and then sort of reenacting it for five minutes to whine about it and then suspending it again for another few years. So given all of that, if we have to, if one of these has to break, let's break the debt ceiling. And I agree with that logic on its face in the sense that, yeah, absolutely of those three, we should violate the debt ceiling rather than, you know, have the executive branch start start doing power of the purse stuff um, in the more fundamental way. But my argument was they just missed the whole fourth option, a, a, a pretty central fourth option, in fact, maybe even the most central, which is that the, the Treasury does not only tax and borrow money, it also creates money. And this is the kind of MMT insight, right? Which is you, the, the money that gets taxed has to be created first. The money that gets borrowed is usually injected in by the Federal Reserve to the primary dealers who then lend it, quote unquote, to the Treasury. And so if we start from the presumption that the the Treasury only borrows and spends money out there, we're ignoring the fact that on a daily basis, it's creating money. And nowadays, we kind of forget that fact because we have delegated a lot of that responsibility to the Federal Reserve and we think the Federal Reserve is sort of separate to the rest of the executive branch. You know, and people who talk about unitary executive theory, including a number of justices on the Supreme Court, would probably disagree with that maybe. But um, the reason we have ignored that is because, again, the mint is sort of sounds like a quaint thing from a documentary about the founding fathers with a tin whistle in the background or something, you know. In reality, the Mint's just been there quietly doing its job for, for, for decades, for centuries, and it sends hundreds of millions of dollars a year in signage revenue back to the Treasury, um, just like the Fed uh, generates billions of dollars in signage revenue. It's the same thing, just a different scale again, just a few more zeros. Um, and so my argument is, if you have to choose an unconstitutional option, yeah, violating the debt ceiling is probably the best one. But if there's a constitutional option on the table, we should be going there first. In fact, we should be really trying to go there first because the alternative is that the president gets to choose when they break laws that Congress has told them to. And if the reason they have to break the law is I literally have no choice, okay, I get it. But if they do have a choice and they just prefer not to use it, that's a very different kind of power grab. That's a very different kind of way that the president is interpreting it. And the way that people have interpreted this is maybe this is legal. Maybe I can do this, but we shouldn't. Why? Because then we would reveal to the public how money works. We would reveal that printing a trillion dollar coin is the same as printing a trillion dollars in debt. There's no difference between you know borrowing and printing money on, from an economic point of view and things. And the public can't handle the truth. You know, It's Jack Nicholson and a few good men. You can't handle the truth. And so we need to keep this myth alive that money is scarce, that we can only tax or borrow it. We can't talk about the big infinity sign in the sky. And in the name of preserving that myth, we're going to violate the Constitution. And that's where they lose me, when you're knowingly advocating unconstitutional behavior over constitutional options because you think it's important to perpetuate a lie. So my understanding of that argument isn't that it's necessarily about protecting the public from the truth and hiding the true nature of debt, but that, you know, minting the coin is basically like a large scale financial experiment and one that we don't necessarily know the consequences of. And that seems like a heavy price for the potential, you know, like maybe we would get a chance at educating the public over how government finances don't function like household finances. Like to me, it's that sort of like cost versus benefit analysis. So I don't know, I guess my question is, what's your response to that? And then be like, what could go wrong if the coin was minted? Like, where are the risks in this project? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, not not to sort of play burden shifting games, but I think the idea that we are going to normalize the president explicitly violating the constitution 
whenever they think telling the truth is going to cause adverse social outcomes is to me, I think, also a pretty big experiment. Uh, it's also pretty risky to let the president say, oh, no, I'm not going to enforce that law. Oh, no, I'm going to do this thing that I'm explicitly set, told I can't do uh, because I don't like the other options available to me to achieve an outcome I think is needed. So I, I don't think it's a matter of one is untested and risky and the other isn't. Blowing through the debt ceiling, just saying, stuff it, I don't care, we're just going to ignore it because there's a higher calling. Uh, I've got no better option. When in reality, they know full well there's another option. They just don't want to talk about that option or don't want to try it is, I think, a, a real threat to having an informed electorate and having a, a, a public policy discussion based in fact, not based in what the, the administration feels that the public needs to know. I think we're in the same category as, you know, secret Pfizer courts or weapons of mass destruction when we start embracing unconstitutional behavior based on fears of how the public will react to the truth. And in terms of the coin being untested, I think we have actually quite a lot of evidence of the past decade that large-scale, quote-unquote, monetization of government debt doesn't really do anything, right? Yes, there's a few middle steps in the middle there that give the impression that this is all market-mediated. But the effect is, if you put the Treasury and the central bank together, that they're running a deficit of $80 billion and they're creating $80 billion of new currency or new reserves every month. Um, so if there is some catastrophic economic effect, uh, we haven't seen it, and nobody who, who I think I respect on the economics says that that, would, that comes naturally. Paul Krugman says, yeah, this is economically indistinguishable from issuing debt. And I just think that, you know, constitutional behavior should not be guided by preserving delusions. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid- to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization – we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. So I want to keep pressing on this question. And as I mentioned, you you actually know like uh, how things work a little bit in D.C. You've worked with some members of Congress to draft laws promoting the minting of the coin. Like I said, you're in addition to being a scholar, sort of a policy entrepreneur you've worked with last March during the debt, during the uh, COVID crisis, you uh, pushed forward some legislation, helped write some legislation on minting coins. But when, you know, the White House, for example, very dismissive of the coin idea, they don't even really give it the time of day. I mean, if you were to say, like, ask the press secretary, uh, Jen Psaki, you know, like, what about the coin option? My impression is they they basically just laugh it off. And I'm still like, I'm trying to understand why, because I guess I, on one hand, I sort of get this idea that's like, oh, we have to preserve the myth of money and how like we can't just create money out of thin air. And I get that maybe some people believe that. But it also seems like probably a prevailing view is this is just silly. We're not going to talk about this. And that their dismissal is just the sort of like 
this is too silly for us to even talk about. And I'm curious what your view is like when you sort of just get these like, is it really because, oh, they all like, you know, the White House really doesn't want to let us in on the secret of money? Or is it really just they haven't put much thought into it, except that it's too silly for them to even contemplate and talk about is like a real thing they would do? Yeah, yeah, no, I don't think that the White House is sitting there necessarily going, oh, we need to preserve these myths. That's that's more the general sort of intellectual community that doesn't want to entertain this. They'll entertain all sorts of creative accounting gimmicks. They'll entertain all sorts of kind of extremely tenuous interpretations of the law. And remember, we're talking about the same kind of financial legal commentary ad that went to town on the Fed's 13-3 emergency powers. And whatever the Republicans might have come back to the negotiating table back then when John Boehner was in charge and things, I think it's a very different Republican Party today. And I think even Mitch McConnell is is quite overt that he's playing a very different game than he was playing back then. And they're probably quite willing to let the US go over that cliff. Probably not, I think, for Treasury securities, for the interest on Treasury debt. But I think McConnell would have no problem with a few weeks of social security payments and government employee payments not being made so that there was a precedent that in the future any debt ceiling crisis would would hurt, you know, domestic spending but not bondholders or something like that, um, and that that was allowed within the 14th Amendment. But I think the short answer is that the Democrats would prefer that the Republicans come back to the table and pass this as a matter of course, and they don't want to entertain solutions that, that assume that strategy has failed. We don't want to entertain that we can do this on our own because we think this is something you should keep coming to the table and working with us on. And, you know, my God, maybe it's the last institutional norm in D.C. that anybody genuinely believes is going to be respected. Um, but I think, frankly, in 2021, it's it's a form of naivety to think that the Republicans want to come to the to the table with this and and that they won't press that nuclear button. Right. We, we, we're in a post-January 6th world now. And yeah, I think there's a very That's obvious so political. Yeah, there's an obvious political calculus for the White House. I just think it's wrong today. It might have been right in 2011. It might have been dangerous to gamble, but they successfully gambled then. But I think we're 10 years later, and the Democrats haven't upgraded their playbook, but the Republicans have. So, a related topic then: What, what do you think public opinion would be like if the government did actually go ahead and decide that this was something that they were going to try and? I mean, both you and Joe have been talking and writing about this topic for over a decade now, and there's still a ton of skepticism about it, you know, even with, you know, you're mostly talking to like people who take an interest in finance and are trying to understand the logic and the rationale behind actually doing this, and it's still sort of an upwards battle. So I guess I'm just curious, what do you think most people would think about this? And then secondly, is there anything that policymakers or the government can actually do to educate about how the whole thing works. Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of two different groups of people, right? There's the economists and the economic commentators who know just enough to be dangerous, right? And just enough to have strongly informed opinions that may be based on faulty premises. And those are the ones that I was really talking about before when I talked about kind of pulling back the veil of money, right? I mean, we've been talking about MMT for a lot longer even than the coin. And there are a lot of people that still think it's dangerous to admit what is, I think, plainly evident to people now, which is that when it matters, there's no limit to how many dollars you can you can create and spend. Um, but there's still a lot of people that think that that's a dangerous thing to admit out loud and we shouldn't do it. And, you know, where you fall on that is probably where you're going to continue to fall if you're already an adult with a PhD in economics or you write for financial journalism as a, as a living. But um, the average person, I think, A, probably wouldn't even notice. They would only notice to the extent they were told by the press. So it would be a huge question of how this gets framed. And of course, it gets framed differently to different people, depending on which kind of media you consume. And it gets framed differently depending on who controls the narrative initially and who sets the terms of how that debate gets framed. You know, death panels was a very powerful line, regardless of how true it was. Um, and Trump did a masterful job of dominating the, the news cycle by just being more outrageous every every five minutes so that nobody could really reclaim the, the, the prior narrative because he was on to the next one. And that was the way the public attention went. So I think the short answer, and I sort of actually made this point in my paper, is, you know, do it on a rainy Friday afternoon, just like they do when they make an announcement about a Pfizer court, you know, change or a Patriot Act amendment or any other kind of law that they don't really want the public to notice. Do it over the weekend and then tell everyone on Monday, you know, afternoon that it's been done. And you know what? The markets didn't collapse and the world kept on spinning and uh, it's done now. 
you can complain about it or you can move on and we can get back to the really important work. And I think, you know, if they did that, there'd probably be a bunch of Democrats that would complain about it for a while and, and then fall back in line because the alternative of, you know, reinforcing the other side's argument is Armageddon. And there'd be a bunch of Democrats that would probably be relieved to hear this is all finally over, think it's a little bit stupid, but say I'm glad that it's done. There would be a lot of, you know, financial investors and things that would go, wow, I can't believe they did that. But again, I'm glad the payments are going to continue to be made. And finally, we can kind of move on from this insanity where the most powerful economy in the world that runs a global reserve currency is constantly on on the edge of tripping over its own shoelaces and falling off a cliff to its death. You know, if you did frame it the right way, right? I think there was someone on Twitter that had a good thread of, you know, they could even write Biden's speech right now. You know, I'm sick of these games. This is a dumb solution to a dumb problem. Let's move on. Let's talk about what really matters. You know, I think people are going, all right, fine. It's crazy, but no crazier than people storming the Capitol or an orange clown being president for four years. All right, this is this is the new normal. Let's let's move on. Um, But again, most people aren't scouring the Treasury general accounts reports on a daily basis. They'd only know this stuff if a bunch of media people told them. Uh, yeah, let me ask you actually like one more sort of technical legal question. So you sort of established that the mint creates money. The Treasury has uh, secretaries the discretion to create high denomination uh, platinum coins. Are there any questions about whether there would be a dilemma or a debate at the Federal Reserve itself about whether it would be compelled to accept it, would it have any um, agency in the question of, okay, you make an argument that it's all pretty legal, but maybe there are lawyers at the Fed who would say, no, this is about collectibles. This is not about replenishing the Treasury uh, general account. Is there any dimension from the Fed side of the equation? Yeah. And and this is a good question. I think that there's, there's one thing that's important to start with, which is blustering that you, that something is illegal is often a good way to ensure that it, the legality never gets challenged, right? And so the Fed saying we wouldn't accept it is at this point all upside and no downside risk for them, right? <laughs> if you try to make us accept it, we'll say no. And then you force, and then you try and they're like, okay, fine, you know? But right now, yeah, they're going to say we don't think we would have to accept it. But the Federal Reserve Act is actually quite clear. And again, this is something that Carlos pointed out, you know, back in the original formulation of this proposal, which is that uh, there's a statutory provision that says in the event that there is a uh, conflict between the Treasury Secretary and the, the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve regarding any powers you know, related to, to the Treasury, uh, that conflict shall be resolved in favor of the Treasury Secretary. And again, that's quite unequivocal. That's quite clear statutory language. So if the Treasury said, hey, it is my statutory responsibility to mint coins, statute says that I shall mint and issue coins of whatever denomination I want, and I've decided to do this, you do not have the power to tell me that my coinage power is limited in this way. This is not a Federal Reserve power. This is a mint power, and that falls squarely within my authority. And if you think you disagree with that, well, I don't care. And in fact, the law and Congress said we don't care either. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that right now, the Fed is the, is the Treasury's fiscal agent. That is to say, it provides the accounting and payment sort of, you know, settlement services on behalf of the Treasury. So for the Fed to refuse to accept a coin like this would be effectively saying, um, you have come to us to try to deposit public monies, you know, monies, and we're saying no. And we, yeah, we, we're required to be your fiscal agent. We're required to provide these services, but we don't want to provide this one. And I, again, don't think there's any justification for that. But even before we get to kind of black letter law arguments, there's just the politics of it, which is, and you can see people like Bernanke over the last decade saying, we will do whatever Congress needs us to do. We will do whatever needs to be done. When there's a crisis like 2020 or 2008, right, you've got Timmy Geithner or Mnuchin or whoever it is huddled up with the Fed chair every day on the phone, hours a day, right, multiple meetings. Whatever you need, we're standing by to accommodate and support. So if there was a moment where President Biden said, I believe it is my constitutional responsibility to avoid a crisis and shutdown, to avoid putting the public debt in question, to to avoid not spending what Congress has told me I must spend, that in my power as commander in chief and, and head of the executive branch, 
I'm directing my treasury secretary to, to mint this coin. And the Fed stands up and says, no, we prefer default. Well, I think that would be incredibly dangerous for the future of Federal Reserve independence. And I think no smart Fed chair would do that. Because they would know in that moment that if this all does go haywire, if this all does go belly up, that that's, that's on the head of the executive branch, that's on the head of the president and treasury secretary, not on them. And this isn't Paul Volcker breaking the back of inflation and standing up to those dastardly unions. This would be the Federal Reserve chair telling the president that they are going to force a default on the government debt in a way that is in violation of the 14th Amendment. And I think, again, it's easy for the Fed to say it would even entertain that thought now when it's a, it's a speculative fiction or a speculative hypothesis. I think if the full force of the president's office in that crunch moment were to, to come down that way, uh, you would be suicidal from an institutional preservation standpoint to get in the way as the Fed. I have one more big picture question, uh, which is, you know, you describe this as a dumb solution to a dumb problem. And I guess I'm wondering if the idea of solving absurdity with more absurdity, if that kind of poses a risk or if there's a slippery slope there. And, you know, again, with your legal expertise, uh, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this. But one of the criticisms of the Trump administration was that they ignored all these previously established norms and what they were doing might not necessarily technically be illegal, but it certainly wasn't the way that the founding fathers of America had thought that um, laws and rules and things like that would be applied. So again, like I'm curious, the platinum coin discussion Yes, it might be legal, but I don't think anyone who set up the laws around minting coins generally, as you laid out earlier, was necessarily thinking that this was a way to solve um, restrictions on the government budget. So I don't know. I guess the question is, like, does this open the door to having a regime where, you know, whoever can come up with the most technical, absurdist accounting loophole kind of wins the day. And, you know, maybe this gets undone in four years time when someone else comes up with like a new way to apply restrictions on debt or minting coinage or something like that. I I forget which economist it was who famously said it takes a theory to beat a theory. But one way to think about the coin, and we talked about this on this other podcast, Money on the Left, with the, in a podcast with Nathan Tankus and I about the coin uh, a few years ago. Um, if we take out the word theater, and replace the word ritual, then it starts to sound a little bit less crazy. And one of the reasons I love the coin as someone that used to be an elementary school teacher is it's something kids can understand. It isn't this hyper-wonky technical treasury debt auction, 11th dimensional chess, bond holders, and all these steps that nobody can understand, which to me has a tinge of, you know, anti-democratic, technocratic elitism that we stamp a coin, the coin has the face of dead presidents and it's worth as much as we say it is because that's what the law says, is something I can teach to a seven-year-old and it has the benefit of being true. If we do have to replace the ritual we have today with another ritual, then, you know, putting, putting the coin in the hand of a five-year-old, calling them the future of America and walking it from the mint to the Fed, maybe is a better symbol for 21st century um, fiscal politics than you know, the, the primary dealer system and the Federal Reserve backing up the secondary market with repo and reverse repo operations and things. Um, that's a very kind of Larry Summers deregulation of derivatives in 1997 metaphor to me. And of course, we're at a point in history when a huge amount of the public is being introduced to monetary politics through the metaphor of digital coins. Right. One of other Joe's, one of his other, you know, uh, campaigns around Dogecoin. You know, we, we, we create coins all the time now. This idea of coinage being kind of forgotten uh, was true 20 years ago and increasingly less so now, not because the government has revived coinage, but because private actors using cryptographic techniques have revived coinage. So, you know, one of the things I end my paper on is maybe we should have a kind of, you know, resurrection of, of coinage and a recentering of the mint in our fiscal politics as a way to kind of reset the board and make things no more complicated than they need to be so that average people can get in on, on the game. Sociologist Jacob Feining, a friend of mine, has this great line that he uses, this great term which he calls monetary silencing. And he says, whether it was 
the founding father revolutionary era or Andrew Jackson and the Bank of the United States or Lincoln and the Greenbacks or William Jennings Bryan and the Populists or, you know, Wilson and, and the Federal Reserve or FDR and and uh, the, the floating of the dollar or, or Nixon and the floating of the dollar, that monetary politics have been at the centre of the American political experiment since the start. And we go in waves where monetary issues sort of come to the forefront and then recede back and come to the forefront and recede back. Um, and this is a moment where whether it's crypto on one hand or central bank digital currencies or this debt ceiling crisis, that monetary politics are coming back to the forefront. And and one way we can do that is with a form of monetary silencing where we tell average people, this stuff is all too complicated for you. You're dumb. You shouldn't understand this stuff. Uh, this is for people who are smart and who have you know degrees in finance and economics and macroeconomics. Um, and we, we we tell average people that this is not a space for them to have opinions. Or we try to make it accessible to people. We try to tell stories and build institutions that you can understand, like people carry a pocket constitution around. And I think that's that's the the pedagogical and symbolic uh, and ritualistic element of the coin. And in my opinion, no, it's no more silly than judges wearing robes. Rowan, that was a great place to leave it. And, you know, I said at the beginning that I was a fan, a believer in the coin of solution. And I am even more so by a high degree of believer in the coin solution after talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on Oblot. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Ron. That was really good. All right, so are you a coiner now? <laughs> I am maintaining uh, my journalistic integrity by not taking sides and continuing to monitor and uh, describe and write and think about this in a neutral way. That's a total cop-out question, but I, I, Rowan laid out a really rational explanation of how this would work yeah. and why you would do it. Um, and I think his is probably like the most convincing explanation that I've heard um, over the past 10 years or so. But on the other hand, part of me is just screaming inside that like, there must be another way. And why can't we just do this like normal people rather than go down a route that, you know, I know it's serious now. And I know it was grounded in in serious um, discussions and thinking about MMT and the nature of debt, but I, I really don't think it started in a serious manner. And I'm not entirely sure people thought or intended it to get this far. And yet, nevertheless, because of everything that's happened in recent times, uh, here we are talking about a trillion dollar platinum coin being the solution to politicians in DC not being able to get their act together and play ball in a fair way in order to, you know, benefit all of the United States. It's all it's all crazy. And and I kind of yeah. hate it. So, I mean, obviously, like I said, I it was found it very convincing. But what beyond that, like what I really found extremely compelling was, OK, yes, the coin is silly. It's weird. You know, we all sort of agree with that. But actually, the number of serious ideas that Rowan brought up that sort of like bolster the legal and philosophical case, I was like truly impressed by that. And thinking about, mm. you know, the fact that although it's much smaller, that the mint is a source of uh, seniorage revenue for the Treasury or thinking about these sort of like institutional relationships mm -hmm. or as he put it at the end, you know. Why can't we change the rituals to make them more accessible? Somehow in the coin conversation, there are some actually just like really profound and important uh, questions that get sussed out from having it. And so I was uh, I was really happy to hear them fleshed out. Well, this was your initial framing of the coin debate. I think you said it was like the most important um fiscal yeah. policy discussion ever, um, which a lot of people thought was hyperbole. But your point was because the discussion was about the nature of money. Yeah. And again, that's something that that Rowan talked about. And it's one of the reasons I asked him about what he thought the public reaction might look like. Yeah, and yeah. I have to say, like, maybe I spend too much time on social media, but Rowan probably is a lot more optimistic about 
how people <laughs> would react to this or the ability of people to sort of think logically and rationally about it um, than some other people might be. But it's an interesting experiment. And like, it's definitely one of the more interesting discussions um, that we've had in a while. Well, I guess hopefully, I don't know. I really want to see it happen. I, other people would say, I hope it happens. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. Like, can you hope for it to happen? Like, because then that means that. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Well. Yes. I hope to see it happen. All right. Well, you know, by the end of the month, uh, you might have your answer. So I guess the good news is you don't have to wait too long. All right. Should we leave it there? Yeah, let's leave it there. Um, This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter, Rowan Gray. He's at Rowan Gray. And you should definitely uh, check out the paper that he has written on uh, the subject. Extremely thorough, very clear. Follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.